Let's talk about the plague of pornography for just a minute. Wow, this is one of the biggest issues that so many deal with in these latter days, but few talk about it or even know how to talk about it. And when they do talk about it, it's usually in a private setting with a leader who is expected to know how to navigate struggles with pornography. Thankfully, Leading Saints has put together a remarkable resource called Liberating Saints. It's a virtual library with 25 plus presentations focused on helping leaders be better prepared to help someone overcome struggles with pornography. We cover topics like how to minimize shame in the bishop's office, how to talk with children about pornography, and even how to talk about female pornography use in Relief Society. If you'd like to review the Liberating Saints library at no cost for 14 days, simply go to leadingsaints.org 14. That's leadingsaints.org 14. While you're at it, we'll give you access to all of our virtual libraries that cover several leadership-related topics. So click the link in the show notes or simply visit leadingsaints.org 14. So my name is Kurt Frankum, and I am the founder and executive director of Leading Saints and obviously the host of the Leading Saints podcast. Now, I started Leading Saints back in 2010. It was just a hobby blog, and it grew from there. By the time uh, 2014 came around, we started the podcast, and that's really when it got some uh, traction and took off. Uh, 2016, we became a 501c3 nonprofit organization, and we've been growing ever since. And now I get the opportunity of interviewing and talking with remarkable people all over the world. Now, this is a segment we do on the Leading Saints podcast called How I Lead. And we reach out to everyday leaders. They're not experts, gurus, authors, PhDs. They're just everyday leaders who've been asked to serve in a specific leadership calling. And we simply ask them, how is it that you lead? And they go through some remarkable principles that should be in a book, that should be behind a PhD. They're, they're usually that good. And uh, we just talk about uh, sharing what the other guy's doing. And I remember being a leader, just simply wanting to know, okay, I know what I'm trying to do, but what's the other guy doing? What's working for him? And so that's why every Wednesday or so, we publish these How I Lead segments to share. We're headed just outside of Pensacola, Florida with uh, Tommy Wilson. Tommy, how are you? I'm doing great. Awesome. And we've got to give a shout out to Katie Searles, who's the one that sent the email to me and said, all right, you got to corner this this Tommy guy, get him on the podcast. And uh, any any words for kind or or not kind for, for Katie for getting <laughs> in this situation? <laughs> no, she's a wonderful person. Her and her husband, they're a great family. They lived in our ward uh, before they moved up to to uh, North Carolina, but we, we miss them and they're great people. Cool. Now you're a Southern boy born and raised in Georgia. Is that what you said? Yes, sir. Cool. And, uh, what, what took you to Florida? Well, we live in the town that my wife grew up in a little town called Crestview, Florida. In fact, her, her family goes back a couple hundred years. I mean, there's some of the people that first established this area. Um, so this is moving home for her and we finally, we're, we're looking and thinking that we might do this at some point. And about seven years ago, we made the move and came here. We've been awesome. here ever since. That's great. And you're currently serving in as the first counselor in the state presidency. And that's a, it's a newer calling for you? That is correct. Yeah, it happened in February. Uh, they reorganized the state presidency and I was called to be the first counselor. Nice. And were you serving as bishop at that time or were you already released? No, I wasn't serving as bishop when I was called. I was serving as the stake young men's president, I had, which I'd been in that position for about only six months. Prior to that, I was the bishop. Nice. And uh, anything worth noting about that that experience? I mean, the interviews come. You, you're not, you know, it doesn't feel like uh, it's going to come your way, but suddenly it does. <laughs> well, actually, it was a crazy experience. Um, well, let's hear it. Yeah, yeah, it was it was it was really strange. I I have a um a really good friend that lives in the stake. We've known each other since I was 14 years old. He's also from Georgia. 
and his name is Spencer Kimball. And uh, several months before they made the change, he started coming to me and telling me he felt like something was about to happen. And he thought it was going to involve both of us or one of us in some way. And I just thought, yeah, you're crazy. That's not going to happen to me. And um, as it got closer, he, he kept having these conversations with me. And I just thought, no, no, that's, that's not going to happen. And then, of course, when they, when they, um, when they come in, you know, the, the, the members of the 70, they come in and they interview this list of people. It's like, I don't know, I think it was probably close to 30 or 40 brothers who were interviewed. And all of them, I thought, were wonderful people. And I thought, surely um, this will happen to one of them. You know, they'll be, you know, and you kind of think this person will be involved. And so what what happened was um, with me was I was interviewed by Elder Nash and Elder Emery. And they set me down and we had this wonderful interview together. And then they asked me this question. Um, they said... I still remember Elder Nash sitting across from me. He said, if I were to get up and go over to this door over here behind me and you heard me say a few words and, and it sounded like someone else wanted to come in and interview. And I said, of course, of course you can come. And then I walked in and instead of me sitting down in front of you, imagine that it was your savior, Jesus Christ. And then he, he asked me, um, what would you say to him? And of course, I had never contemplated that really on that level. I had never really thought about that in that scenario. But at that moment, it felt to me as though this was really happening. And all I could say was, thank you. And I love you. So I walked away from this experience. Um, and I just felt that this burden was lifted off of me that I didn't even know I was carrying. I didn't know I was carrying a burden. But I felt so much lighter and freer when I came out of that interview that I immediately thought, that's, that's, what, that's what I needed. That's what I that's why I was interviewed. I'm not going to be in the state presidency. This is over for me. This is a blessing for me. I can move on and, and be happier and better and freer and lighter. And, and just, it was just a wonderful experience. I called my wife and told her about it. It was just great. Um, so then later on when <laughs> they called me in and said, okay, and they're meeting with my wife and, um, they didn't really tell me whether or not they were considering me for the stake president or a counselor in the stake presidency. In fact, all the way up to the moment where they issued the call, they said, would you be willing to serve in any position the Lord desires you to serve in? And I kind of was like, um, yes, I think. <laughs> But that is inside, the right answer. I, Good job. Yeah. <laughs> inside, I felt like I can't be the stake president. I don't know. I just felt like I cannot be the stake president. So I was tremendously relieved when they told me that they wanted me to be the first counselor in the stake presidency. And as soon as they said that, both me and my wife, we both felt like this was right. This was this was the right the right call. And mm -hmm. um it's been a blessing. So yeah, That's it was, great. it was a good experience. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. And maybe just give us the lay of the land there uh, for your stake, the name of the stake, how it's laid out, the demographics, the, if there's anything, any unique characteristics to it or. Sure. Yeah. So we're the Fort Walton beach, Florida stake. There are 10 units in our stake. Um, we have several, most of the units, well, all of the units are, are in Florida, Northwest Florida. Uh, Destin, Fort Walton Beach, Crestview, Niceville, Freeport, uh, the Crestview Ward, and oh, and also Defuniac Springs. The Crestview and Defuniac Springs wards actually continue up into the southern part of Alabama. So it's a rather large stake. Probably take you an um, hour and a half to two hours to drive from the from one point to the other uh, across the stake boundaries. Um, but yeah, it's a it's a great area of the world. The church. Um, 
has been here for a long time, used to own a ton of land here. He used to own a lot of farming property. Mm. So the church actually sent people here um, a long time ago, over a hundred years ago to, to work some of the land that they owned and they, they grew crops, they had cattle. Uh, of course, they moved a lot of those operations to other parts of the country. Um, and now that land has been sold off for the most part, but um, there's still a lot of people here that have been here and active members of the church for a very, very long time. Wow. And then uh, I feel like gone are the days where we can remember where all the temples are. So uh, where's the, the closest temple to you? Well, right now, the closest temple or our temple that we are assigned to is Birmingham, Alabama, Okay, which is about a four hour drive from here. Oh, wow. But very, yeah, very soon we will get the uh, Tallahassee, Florida temple, which will only be about two hours from here. So we're excited about that. But still, yeah. two hours is long, a long time for, a, you know, in the U.S. So I'm sure President Nelson has something up his sleeve for, for Pensacola, right? <laughs> well, you can only hope, but Tallahassee is <laughs> a huge deal. So oh, we're good. Well, I'm glad us, you're excited about it. We're, we're cutting our travel time in half. So that's a yeah, big deal. And we're, we're happy with that. Yeah. Awesome. So I, I just, as we, we talk here, I'd love to just reflect on your time, you know, in this current role, which is just a few months, but also as being bishop, um, you know, now you're sort of in that mentorship role, uh, sitting down with a, a, a new bishop. Like, wh- where should we begin as far as the concepts or principles or stories that you tell those new bishops uh, to help prepare them in their role as a leader? Well, I think, you know, in, in my time in any position, you know, what you learn in leadership in the church and what you hope everyone will learn in the church is to become more like Christ. And you find these these ways, uh, I think for me anyway, being in positions, different positions, what it does is it exposes weaknesses that I don't think I would have seen otherwise. And it in, in exposing those weaknesses, really an opportunity to become more like my Savior. Um, so I, I consider it a blessing when, when things like that happen. Um, I always think about this, uh, this friend of mine that I had. I had this really good friend in in Texas when I lived there named Corey and Corey and I worked together. He wasn't a member of the church, um, but we, we just really loved each other and, and had a good time together. We played a lot of basketball together, but Corey was this unique individual that would, that would come up to me and call me out on different things. Oh, interesting. He, yeah. He would, he would come up and he would say something to me that he's like, Hey, I don't know if you realize you do this. And he would then tell me what it was I was doing. And of course, I would be very reluctant to accept that. And I would go home to Alicia, my wife, and I'd say, you're not going to believe what Corey said to me today. You just won't believe this. And I would proceed to tell her what he said. And she would always just kind of get this little smile on her face. And then she'd say, you know, I really like Corey. I think he's a good friend. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Which I I interpreted as her subtle way of saying, Corey's right. You need to listen to him. Um, But... You know, I just think it's good. It's it's rare to have those opportunities where it's rare to have a friend that will really loves you enough to tell you you might want to think about changing something in a loving way. Yeah. But it's also a blessing just to be put in positions where you're constantly outside of your comfort zone, and you just have to look at yourself and say, what What am I doing? Uh, what can I What can I do to improve? And how can I yeah. be better? And I think these callings are are opportunities for that. And and then I mean, especially as a bishop. I mean, I don't know of any other calling in the church where you get to be so involved in the details of people's lives that people will will sit down with you and trust you enough to say, just to lay it all out there and say, here's what I'm going through and here's where we are and, you know, can you help? And that's a, just a sacred position to be put in. And it really, you know, humbles you and causes you to to pray more earnestly and deeply than you've ever prayed before. And you just hope that you can be inspired and say something and do something that will help and uplift and strengthen these people. So that's a special calling. Yeah. So what do you remember from just those uh, personal weaknesses that came to the surface, you know, in in your time as as Bishop? Oh man, there's so many. I mean, I remember, you know, it's funny because I've listened to a lot of people give their, their speech when they're released from a bishop. (laughs) And I literally have heard people say, I heard people say this too, when they came home from their mission, it is not something that I can relate to in any, in any way, but people would say, 
you know, they talk about their service and they would say, I have no regrets. I, I, I have no regrets. And I would just think, man, that must be nice because <laughs> I couldn't make it through a couple of weeks as a bishop without a regret, mm-hmm. you know, wishing that I had done something different, said something different, not said something at all. You know, I just can't, I can't relate to that feeling. Um, but in, in some of those things that I regret, what happens is as I learned the, the, the most powerful lesson. And I'll, I'll tell you one that comes to my mind immediately. I was serving as a bishop and my family. Um, so on both sides of my parents' family, my mother and my father, which they, they both have passed away. But my mother is the only LDS person on her side of the family. My father is the only LDS person on his side of the family. Um, when they, they, they joined the church together after they were married, they found the missionaries and, and they are from Southern Georgia. They're both sides of their family are, are Baptist. And so everyone, when they found out they were joining the church, everyone thought they were just insane, crazy. They'd been brainwashed. This is, what are you doing? That was the reaction. And, and then at family reunions growing up, that's kind of how we were treated still was like, these are the weird people. Um, and everyone else, you know, so, but as we got older and as things progressed, actually they, they gained a lot of respect and, and reached out from, to us from time to time. And especially I have aunts and uncles that just really love me and treat me with a lot of respect. And so it's, I'm super grateful for that, but I have an aunt that had called me up and told me that, um, her brother, uh, which would also have been my dad's younger brother was in the hospital and he wasn't, he wasn't looking good at all. And she wanted me to come and give him a blessing. And so I thought, okay, I'll, I'll do that. I happened to be traveling about three hours from my house, but I happened to be traveling to that, that exact town for a business meeting at the time. So I thought this is perfect. It works out. So I went to the hospital and I was literally like 30 minutes from the hospital. And I had this feeling this just strong feeling that, that was saying, you don't need to bless your uncle. You need to bless your aunt because it's time for him to come home. It's his time. Hmm. Like you need to walk in. I just knew I needed to walk into that hospital room and I need to tell my aunt, Hey, let me give you a blessing before we do anything. And I needed to bless her that she would just, know that this was the Lord's will, accept this, be at peace with it. I knew everything I needed to say in this blessing. I walk into the hospital room. I see my uncle there struggling even to breathe. I see my aunt and also my cousin in the room crying, and I just simply could not do it. I couldn't do what the Lord, I just, I couldn't Mm -hmm. break their heart, you know? I, I, so I gave my uncle a blessing because they wanted me to, and I knew that's what they wanted. And afterwards, when I got back in the car, I just felt terrible. I just felt so like, what did I do? Why didn't, why didn't I not have the courage to listen to the prompting? And I promised myself, and I said, if this ever, if I'm ever in this situation again, I'm just doing it. I'm just saying what the Lord tells me to say. I'm not going to question it. I cannot, this cannot happen again. Right. And so then I live my life and, and things go on. And then, uh, just a little over a year ago, our relief society president calls me when I was a Bishop. And she said, my husband had a heart attack. He's on the way to the hospital. Can you meet us there? Give him a blessing. I met her there. They're rolling him into the ER. My stake president was also there. He was a physician, President Roberts, a wonderful man. And uh, he anointed and asked me to bless. And when I laid my hands on his head, I knew he wasn't going to make it. But I also knew his wife was standing right there. And I simply just, again, even though I promised myself I would never do this, I did not have the courage to say it's time for you to, to let go. And I just, 
said some words of comfort and, and peace as best I could and, and ended the blessing. So I, I share things like that. And honestly, I share things like that with the congregation so that they know we're not perfect. I'm not perfect. Mm. I make mistakes. I'm still learning. I hope that the next time that I'm in that position that I'll do something different, but I can't promise you I will. Um, I really hope I will. I really, really do. And I think I'm getting better um, and I'm getting closer and becoming more of, of who the Lord wants me to be. But I, I just want to let people know, like, we're all working on it. You know, we're all just doing the best we can. Yeah, I, I love that. because, And this is really poignant for you bring that up in the last few weeks in the leading saints newsletter, I've been sort of trying to explore this, this concept of how can a leader be more authentic and, and share weaknesses and even ways they struggle with sin with those that they lead, because that makes you more personable. It connects you Mm -hmm. with those that you lead. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is a great example of just, you know, I, you know, time after time I missed it. You know, I, I got the prompting, I missed it. And, and it, uh, you know, of course you're learning, you're on your own personal journey, but others as well think, Oh, I'm, I'm like Bishop Wilson, right? Like he, he gets me. And, and I, and, uh, they're, I think they're more willing to engage with the leader who's willing to meet them on a human level. Mm-hmm. Well, I hope so. Um, yeah. if not, then I'm doing it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I, but, I love uh, it. I love it. Is was there any other ways that you tried to just be real and authentic uh, with with as well, a bishop, especially with the youth? The, hmm. You know, the young men. Um, it just one day, and this is towards the end of me being a bishop. And one day, it just hit me: all these young men are struggling with the same things. They literally are all talking to me about the same exact struggles. And so, finally, I just. Went. I just called them all in individually and set them down and said, listen, you guys are all struggling with the same stuff. We have got to find a way. It, it's great that you can come to me and you can talk to me about it. I, that's wonderful. I love it. I think you'll get more help if you go to the other young man and talk to him about it. Wow. And, and if you could all talk to each other, support each other, create a group together where you're calling and you're checking in and you're helping and you're lifting each other, that's where you're really going to find your strength, you know, because it just helps. It just helps to know there's other people going through these things. So I, I remember as a way to encourage them to do this, I um, and I don't know, it just hit me one day. I, I did this to all the young men. I gave this speech to the young men. I gave the speech to the young women. I went into the Relief Society, gave the same speech to them, and went into the Elders Quorum and gave the same speech to them. The only oh, people nice. who didn't get the speech that day was the primary. I figured they <laughs> will we'll give them a little break. They can, they can get it later. But basically what I told them was talk to each other. Like be honest with each other. You all are sitting here in this room struggling with the same stuff. Not every one of you, but you're not alone. There's nobody in there that is alone in their struggle. Everybody is so much more relatable than you think, right? There's that, there's that phrase out there that's always been super like true to me, and that is that which is most personal is most general. You know, and I really feel like when we're sharing our heart and when we're sharing like what we're really deeply going through is when we're going to connect. So I told the I told the young men this story. I said, you know, when I was 17 years old, it's a true story. I had a good friend of mine, like a brother to me. I mean, so close. I loved him as much as you can love another young man. Like we did everything together. And he came to me. And he kind of bore his soul and he told me. Hey, I'm, I'm struggling with this thing. And it's really, it's really a struggle for me. And the thing doesn't matter, right? What matters is when he told me that I was struggling with the exact same thing, Hmm. but this is how, this is how insecure I was as a 17 year old. This is how low my self-esteem was. I thought the only reason he was telling me that was so that I would confess that I was struggling with the same thing and then he could then tell all of our friends and make fun of me. That's what my brain was telling me Hmm. because I was so insecure. And so when he confessed this to me, I said, man, that sounds really hard. You know, let me know what I can do to help. That's all I said. And, And I really feel like to this day, I feel like I missed an opportunity, you know, 
why could I not just say, hey, man, me too. I'm struggling with that too. Let's get, let's figure it out together. Let's help each other. Let's get through it together. That's what I should have said. Right. And I regret it. And, and so I shared that with the young men and, um, and just encouraged them to talk, to, to be honest, to be open with each other. I went into the relief society. I told them about, you know, the first time I ever met with a therapist and how it helped me and, and, and just try to be open about struggles with life and, and, and said, listen, talk to each other. You know, the first step to healing in most of all the therapy that I've ever been a part of is just talking about it. I, you know, it's one of the most powerful experiences I've ever had in my life. Um, 11 or 12 years ago, we had a son who only lived about three hours. Wow. Uh, Benjamin, he had, um, he had some conditions. It was some. It wasn't trisomy thirteen, but it was along the same lines. Um, and the doctors told us before he was born that he would he would not be able to live outside the womb. And so we prayed as a family to. We. I mean, it just it just devastated us. You know, we we had three girls. They were super healthy, and then my wife kept getting pregnant and kept having miscarriages after miscarriage three in a row over the course of five or six years. Then we got pregnant this fourth, you know, it would would have been the fourth time after our three girls were born. And um, it looked like everything was going to be fine. We went in to find out the sex of the baby. And that's when they just unloaded all this information on us. And uh, so we, we, we started to pray as a family that we would just be able to meet him, that he would just be able to be born. And we would be able to spend some time with him. And, that, and those prayers were answered. And we had about three hours with Benjamin. But I remember when at the funeral, when they when they put the, the coffin in the ground, the mound of dirt was there. Everyone had left. I was there by myself. And I had this desire that was super embarrassing and super hard for me to talk about because I, I felt like it made me a very strange person. But I wanted to dig up the grave and I wanted to take my little boy and I just wanted to like leave, like run away. And it wasn't when I say I wanted to, it wasn't like a fleeting thought. It was like I was sitting there contemplating whether or not I was going to do this. And I, I, I didn't. I, did, I decided not to. <laughs> decided that would be a bad idea. But it was really something that I was close to doing. And when I came home, I was super embarrassed to tell my wife that I had this feeling. Luckily, my wife is so much wiser than me. And a couple of weeks before this, she had found this group online, this group of women who have gone through the exact same thing. And she joined this online support group where all these people talk about their feelings and talk about what they're going through and help each other. And so I, I decided to confess this to my wife and tell her what I was feeling. And as soon as I had finished speaking, she goes, oh, yeah, that's super common. Look here, let me show you this thread. And she shows me all these people who have had the exact same feeling when they bury their son or their child. And it just when I read that, I just was like, oh, wow, what a sigh of relief. It felt like, OK, I'm not strange. I'm not weird. I'm not the only person in the world that's ever had this feeling. There's nothing wrong with me. And it just felt so much better. And I felt so much comfort for that. And, and so I share that story with people to try to just convince them to talk to people about what they're going through. Because uh, bishops are great, but you can get a lot more support from the person sitting next to you that's going through the same thing than you can from your bishop. Yeah. Oh, that's powerful. And, you know, that there's something about being human of when you find a community of like like similar people or people who think like you or have had similar experiences, it's so de-shaming, you know, you don't, cause mm -hmm. I think the adversary wants us to feel like we're completely alone and we're almost crazy for it. You know, you're alone, not because you're alone, but because you're crazy. Right. Yes. And really it's, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because if the more you listen to that and the more you kind of tuck into yourself and withdraw, then the more you feel alone, and it just, it gets worse and worse. Yeah. So how did all the, those groups on, as you went around, uh, you know, the, with the youth and elders corps and relief society, how do they respond to your invitation to, to talk more? <laughs> well, you never know how people are going to respond, right? Yeah, That's exactly. one of the things it's like, it's scary to stand up and say that. Yeah. Um, 
but so many people came up to me um, and said, thank you. In fact, uh, Sister Searles, Katie, that we talked about, she was one of the people who began to do that and try to set the example of struggles that she was having. Um, so I, I feel like there were people that it resonated with and the people that started to do that. It's one of those things that's kind of scary because in the church, nobody wants to hear you start uh, giving a laundry list of all the sins you've committed. You know, so it's like a fine line of like, how do you share what you're going through without making people all feel uncomfortable and want to stare at the ground while you're talking? You know, nobody wants to make eye contact anymore. You've gone too far. But I think there's a way. I think there's, like I've shared with you today, you don't really know anything that I've done wrong specifically, mm-hmm. uh, but you know that I've made mistakes and you know that I'm human and you know that I, you know, so I think there's a, there's a right way to do it. There's a wrong way to do it. And you kind of, you have to be willing for people. It has to be okay for people to do it the wrong way because not everybody's going to know how to share. Um, when they start doing this and you're going to get some uncomfortable stories and you're going to get people wanting to look at the ground and you just have to be okay with that, you know, as a leader to know that I'd rather have that than everybody standing up there pretending like their life is perfect, you know? Right. Yeah. And, and it's one of those things like, you know, I appreciate that invitation that came from a leader. You have to push through it in order to say, okay, I'm, I'm going to try this. And as other people do it, mm-hmm. and there's momentum there. And, and then that group's going to be more connected. And there's going to be more healing. There's going to be more reason to find redemption when they come to Relief Society on Sunday, when they know that it's a healing group there of, of, of sisters who are coming together and, and leaning on one another to find uh, relief, you know. That's what it should be. Yeah, it should be. Uh, you should look forward to it, you know, and, and yeah. I don't think anybody looks forward to um, two hours of time that they have to pretend to be somebody that they're not. You know, that's not an exciting time for anyone. Yeah. But if you know that you can go there and you can be yourself and everybody's going to love you and accept you and help you and lift you up, that that's that's something you're going to look forward to. Yep. Tell me about this concept you mentioned before you hit record about just your your method of investing in people or, you know, connecting with people on a, on a deeper level on a, you know, one by one type thing. What, what comes to mind? What stories or, or principles? Well, again, I think it a lot of it has to do with just being focused on the individual that is standing in front of you, sitting in front of you. If you really can think about what would be beneficial if I were in that situation. And so many times when people are in front of me, I can relate because I have been in that situation. I have sat in front of uh, ecclesiastical leaders and had to repent and confess and felt shame and guilt and remorse. And I've been there. And so I know what it feels good to hear and what it doesn't feel good to hear. And so when somebody sits in front of me, I'm thinking more of how can I lift this person up and what can I do for this person? Um, and even experiences like I shared in the beginning with, with, with Elder Nash and Elder Emery, when I was called to be in the stake presidency, and, and quite honestly, I had to share some things with them uh, just to make sure that that I was worthy to hold this position and to make sure that things were OK, that they knew everything that I had done in my past and they were OK with me still serving this position. And and the feedback that I received from them was like, isn't that wonderful? Isn't repentance wonderful? Isn't it isn't it beautiful that you can be clean and you can move on? And there was no hesitation. And and and. And so just to be able to share, that's, that's what I feel like you need to be sharing. I think that, that we don't understand how compassionate, how forgiving our Savior is, that we can't really comprehend. Um, the level of mercy that he has and forgiveness for each of us. Certainly we can't comprehend the love that he feels for us. And so I felt a tremendous responsibility to try to represent that love uh, to anyone who was meeting with me. Love it. And I know this is probably like an impossible question, but like, if like, what, what did that look like as far as the tactics or if somebody's like, I want to do that, I just don't know how, Yeah. like, how would you coach them through that? The, the spirit is your guide. 
really. I, I remember I was serving. I was. I had no leadership. Well, I, 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 I take that back. I think at this time that this happened, I was the assistant ward mission leader, which you know that's not a really high up, uh, high ranking position in our church, right? The assistant ward mission leader. It's kind of like, hey, this guy doesn't have a calling. What can we do? Uh, we'll make him the assistant ward mission leader. So that's what I was doing at the time. But I did have a uh, home teaching assignment, which we now call ministering. But at the time, I had a home teaching assignment. And one of these families who I love and I'm in contact with to this day, they had not been to church in probably at least 15 years. But, but they would let me come over and visit. And we had the most wonderful visits. And on the way to visit them, um, I had this feeling that I needed to share a story with them. Now, this story happened to be a mistake that I made that was probably the most embarrassing thing that I've ever done, the most shameful thing, the thing that maybe about three people in this world even know about, you know? Mm. And I thought, so I immediately thought, no, that's silly. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not going to tell them that. That's, that's crazy talk, right? And it just kept coming to me. So I kind of was praying out loud in my car as I'm driving over there. And I'm like, uh, you know, that's not good. I, I, I'm not going to tell him that. And finally, I just said, okay, all right, Heavenly Father, I'll tell them if they're all there. So they had a couple daughters, a couple son-in-laws, a grandchild. And I just said, if all of the family is there, then I'll tell that story. But if we're missing somebody, you know, I don't know who the, who it's for. You're not telling me who it's for. So for missing somebody, I, I won't tell it. That was the deal I made with myself. I don't think Heavenly Father was really in on that deal, but I made that deal with myself because really I had never been there and had the whole entire family there at the same time. So I thought I was pretty safe. So I walk into their house. We're talking. Uh, and immediately I'm like, oh, who's home? <laughs> you know, <laughs> and the, the parents are like, oh, it's just us. And I was like, Ah, whew, okay, good, good. And we <laughs> we talk a little while, and then one of the daughters walks in. I was like, okay, that's that's not good. And uh, we talk a little bit more, and then the son-in-law walks in. And before long, you know, 15, 20 minutes into this visit, the whole entire family is there, and the whole entire family is gathered in the living room. This literally has never happened. I've been visiting this family for over a year. I had never had everyone there in the same room at the same time. They don't even live in the same house. The older kids, they live in apartments like yeah. all over the city. So there's no, this just never happened. So I took that as the sign I needed that Heavenly Father really did, for some unknown reason, want me to share this really embarrassing story about myself. So literally, I feel like, I don't know if this is real, but I feel like I was looking at the ground the whole entire time while I was telling this embarrassing story. And then I ended and then I said, I'm not sure why the Lord wanted me to tell you that. But that's what I was supposed to share with you today. And I feel like I just got up and walked out of the house because <laughs> yeah. I was so embarrassed. I don't know if that's really what happened, but I feel like that's what happened. But I definitely told the story and I left shortly thereafter. And even on the way home, I thought, why in the world? It felt right. I had this feeling like you did the right thing. Like that's what, that's what you needed to do. And I felt good about that. But my mind was just saying, why in the world would, would, would I need to share that? It just, I don't understand. And so I thought about that. And then Sunday, I was walking into church, the whole entire back pew, every single member of their family sitting in church Sunday morning for the first time in probably 10 or 15 years. And I just thought, I don't know why, but the Lord knew. Like, I, I never would have thought that that embarrassing story would be the thing that they needed to hear to, to come back to church. But the Lord yeah. knew. And so I just had to, to listen and, and do what he said to do. And I think that's the key. That's one of the keys. Yeah. I, I, love, I love your stories. of, And I've been in this boat too where like there's, there, there's maybe not a lot of proof that I'm really good at recognizing a spiritual prompting, but I have a long list of proof 
that I'm willing to follow what I think may be a spiritual prompting. Right. And I think that, and that's the hard part, like just getting in the practice. Sometimes I tell myself, I don't Mm -hmm. know, is this a prompting or what is it like? Well, no, whatever it is, it's an opportunity to show God that I'm willing to, to lead into even the craziest of promptings and, uh, and show up and and act and, and be that type of person, even though, in the middle of it, you're thinking, boy, this was a mistake. This has turned into a dumpster fire. What do I do? Uh, retreat, <laughs> retreat, you know? So, yeah. And awesome. I, I think I had a bishop one time that tell, told me um, he used to really worry about whether a prompting was coming from God. He used to really think long and hard about, is this just me or is this Heavenly Father that's trying to talk to me? Like, where is this coming from? And finally, he just decided, like, if it's good, if it will bring me closer to this, this individual or it will be, bring me closer to God, I'm going to stop worrying about who it came from and I'm just going to do it. Yeah. And, and I think that's, that's the answer. Yeah. It's powerful. I think, I think that'll give a lot of leaders encouragement the next time they, they feel that nudge, you know? So um, talk to me about uh, not taking yourself too seriously as a leader. Well, I mean, the thing about it is I, I just, I like to have fun. I love being with the youth because it gives me permission to act like a kid and to go out and do fun things that I love to do. And, um, I like to laugh at myself. I'm, I'm kind of a goofy person. Um, and I don't, I just, I don't take myself too seriously. And I've learned that, you know, whatever you're going through, it's a lot easier to go through it with a smile on your face and with a little bit of humor then, uh, you know, if it's going to happen, you might as well try to make the best of it. And, uh, I like to laugh at myself. My girls always all make fun of me all the time. Um, <laughs> I, I have this, so I cry a lot, you know, I get emotional really easily. I cry more <laughs> than anyone in my family. I've got a wife and three daughters and I cry probably more than all of them put together. So they will constantly make fun of me about that. Uh, my wife, when I was a bishop, I would, I, I have a, trouble like um i don't have a very good poker face so you can tell what i'm feeling and thinking almost any time <laughs> and so routinely i would be sitting on the stand and somebody's like bearing their testimony on fasting testimony meeting and it's getting really weird and all of a sudden my my watch buzzes and i look down and it's like a text from my wife and she's saying you need to fix your face you know <laughs> that was a that was a that was a text I got frequently as a bishop because, uh, you know, I'd have some confused look on my face while someone's giving a strange talk. And, uh, yeah. you know, that was just a reminder. Yeah, that's an interesting dynamic that happens with leaders in, in this faith tradition we have of where, you know, the leaders sit on the stand. Um, I remember, like, by the end of my time as bishop, I had this really dialed in. But as early <laughs> on, I mean, random people in the ward would come up to me after and be like, Wow, did you not get good sleep last night? You look really tired. Or something. <laughs> and I'd be tired. like, yeah. what? So like sitting up yeah. there, I've, I've been never been so self-aware of my face and like, <laughs> yeah. just just keep the slight grin on your face and, and get through this hour, you know, because uh, people really That's are right. aware. They do look at you. Um, They're watching. Yeah. And I used to always tell my, even my counselors, I'd say, when somebody's speaking in sacrameting, just look at the speaker as much as possible. Don't look at your phone. Right. Don't like wander around the room because right. people will see where you're looking and they'll look there too. And so let's, let's do that. You know? So it's, it's crazy how, how aware people are in the congregation of, of the Bishop Brick's faces, you know? <laughs> yeah. So. No, I wasn't, I wasn't great at that, but yeah, <laughs> that's cool. Still, awesome. still, still have some things to work on. But. Well, that's, that's the beauty of mortality. So Awesome. Uh, Tommy, any, any other principle or concept or story that we need to make sure we, we fit in here before we wrap up? You know, I, I will share this. Um, I feel like I've had an interest, interesting journey in the gospel. Um, since I received my testimony, I've never really had any significant doubts. I've had a lot of questions. I've had a lot of things I've had to to research and pray about and and come to terms with, um, but I've never had any significant doubts. Um, but I'll tell you this, I was probably 33 years old. You know, I served, I grew up in the church. I, I did everything you're supposed to do in the church, served a mission, all that stuff. But it wasn't until I was 33 years old that I felt and really felt that God loved me and that I didn't have to do anything to earn his love, but he just loved me uh, 
the way a father loves a son unconditionally. And I think the reason why I didn't feel that love is because I was hiding. I was hiding who I was. I was hiding a lot of thoughts and feelings. And when I became ready to kind of bear my soul and just put it all out there, um, which I, I did to my wife, actually. <laughs> and I just basically just said, here's how I feel and here's who I am. And this is everything. Um, she said, after I did that, she said, well, I still love you. Um, and it was the first time that I, I remember feeling like this person knows everything about me, everything that I've ever done, everything I've ever thought about doing. And she still loves me. And I think it opened up the possibility that God could still love me, that God really could love me. And this moment, I remember it. I was on my way to a, to a business meeting. I was in my car driving down the highway, and I was just thinking about Christ and my Heavenly Father, and it just settled on me. Like, I felt for the first time the love of God. Like, He, not only did He love me, but He, he longed to have me with Him. That He really enjoyed my presence, and He just wanted to be with me. And I had to pull over. I got so emotional. And and that experience, just, it just changed me, you know, um, just to understand the depth at which our Heavenly Father loves and appreciates us. And then as a bishop, I had an experience that that I'll never forget as well. I, I, I had a lot of funerals. I lived in a, I was a bishop of a ward that had a lot of elderly people. So I probably did a couple of dozen uh, funerals. And, um, I would always go and meet with the family and ask them to tell me stories about the, the person who had passed away. I wanted to get to know them. If I was going to speak at this funeral, I wanted to know them on a personal level. And on one such occasion, there was a, this gentleman who was technically a member of the church, but I don't think he'd ever stepped foot inside of a church. Um, but his family wanted to do a, a, a funeral for him in our church. So we did that. And I went and met with the family and I said, you know, I want to know, I want to know as much as I can about this gentleman. And I'm telling you, no one had anything nice to say about this person. Hmm. He was an abusive alcoholic. He destroyed relationships. He, this was, you know, his life just sounded like a reign of terror. And I sat and listened to this and just, I mean, literally no one had one single redeeming thing to say about this person. And I remember going home and getting on my knees and, and asking my Heavenly Father, what, what do I say? What do I do? And I just sat there kind of confused. And then this thought came to me and it just simply said, this is my son. And I love him. And I will never stop fighting for him. And when I felt that, I knew, I knew that he just, he knew this person and he loved this person and he wanted this person to be redeemed so badly that he would do anything, anything possible, everything possible, right up to the moment, like as long as he could. And, and I just knew that he felt that way about every single person, no matter the circumstance. And so I feel, especially as a bishop, I just felt a tremendous responsibility to share that with the people that I met. Wow. I love that. That's powerful. And that's really, I mean, those moments of leadership where you, you almost get access to a, a deep, a, a new layer of grace that you can offer to people. You know, it's, it's fantastic. Last question I have for you, Tommy, and, and this maybe was answered by your, your that last story, but uh, maybe you can spend on it as we wrap up here. But uh, as you reflect back on your time as a leader, as a bishop, and now in the stake presidency, how has being a leader helped you become a better follower of Jesus Christ? I think it, I think it really is like kind of what we talked about in the beginning, where it exposes these weaknesses. It shows you what you can be. And I, I don't know how to answer it really. 
if being a leader makes me a better follower of Christ or if being a better follower of Christ makes me a better leader, I think they both go hand in hand. Um, the, the better we become at following our Savior Jesus Christ, the better we're going to be as a leader. But obviously, leadership has presents us with those opportunities to expose weaknesses and to see where we are out of alignment with our Savior and then um, have the opportunity to, to act as He acted, which will, will make us a better follower of Christ in the end. And that concludes this How I Lead interview. I hope you enjoyed it. And I would ask you, could you take a minute and drop this link in an email, on social media, in a text, wherever it makes the most sense, and share it with somebody who could relate to this this experience. And this is how we how we develop as leaders, just hearing what the other guy's doing, trying some things out, testing, adjusting for your area and that's where great leadership's discovered, right? So we would love to have you uh, share this with uh, somebody in this calling or a related calling, and that would be great. And also, if you know somebody, any type of leader, who would be a fantastic guest on the How I Lead segment, uh, reach out to us. Go to leadingsaints.org contact. Maybe send this in individual an email, letting them know that you're going to be suggesting their name for this interview. We'll reach out to them. And... Uh, see if we can line them up. So again, go to leadingsaints.org slash contact, and there you can submit all the information and let us know. And maybe they will be on a future How I Lead segment on the Leading Saints podcast. And remember, go to leadingsaints.org slash 14 to access our full Liberating Saints virtual library. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the declaration was made concerning the only, and only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness. The loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away, and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.